The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. 2020 is barely two weeks old, and Donald Trump has already taken us deep into the four eyes. Iran, Iraq, impeachment, and Iowa. Hello, and welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm Joyce Cordy. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems. I don't make them. In both the media world and in politics, there are lots of people whose purpose is to inflame your passions rather than to reason with you. My purpose is different, to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. Over the holidays, I made the decision to move away from a 20th century terrestrial radio posted as a podcast to a 21st century model of a podcast-only format. This new format, hosted at ricochet.com and c-suiteradionetwork.com, will offer us more flexibility, shorter, more focused podcasts, published more frequently, and focusing on a single topic sometimes at greater length. Building a stronger bridge between the Reimagine America blog and these podcasts, and encouraging a richer dialogue with you, the listener, over time. So let's keep, kick off this brief discussion of each of the four eyes, starting with Iran. It's been almost two weeks since the U.S. military, or maybe it was the CIA, Remove General Soleimani, the powerful leader of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, with a drone-fired missile. Boom! And the Congress and the American people are still being told that we can't be trusted with the intelligence that made this highly provocative move necessary. Let's not make any bones about it. General Soleimani was one evil hombre. He had the blood of hundreds of young Americans on his hands. He was a sponsor of terror throughout the Middle East and sometimes beyond that for the last several decades. But pray tell, what changed the calculus between opportunity and risk? that made Soleimani a top Trump priority, either seven months ago or two weeks ago. I've lost count of the various and sundry reasons offered by the administration without proof. We've heard that it was necessary to omit the customary and step of notifying Congress at least the leadership of Congress and the heads of both the House and Senate Intelligence Committees before the action was undertaken. So that leadership team, plus those two secretary, those two chairs of intelligence, one of whom is a Republican, 
are known as the Gang of Eight. Well, the excuse we're offered by the White House is, well, we couldn't tell them because it might leak. Well, you told Eric Trump since he tweeted about it. You told Lindsey Graham, who pumped his chest and said, yeah, sure, I found out about it while I was playing golf with the president last week. But you couldn't tell the members of Congress who have the responsibility for declarations of war. That makes me a tiny bit suspicious. Just a tiny bit. Because it might leak? Hmm, more likely because the president insists daily on testing the limits of Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution because he says, I can do anything I want. No, you can't, Mr. President. The power to declare war and make no mistake about this, killing General Soleimani, especially doing it on another sovereign nation soil, was an act of war. Well, that responsibility resides solely with Congress, or it used to when we were a constitutional republic. The president's job under the Constitution is to prosecute the war if Congress authorizes it. We need to get back to that balance of power. We need at least a new authorization of military force agreement that addresses the current circumstances that find 50,000 American young people in the Middle East again after we had brought all of them home. The circumstances that created the current um, authorization for military force don't fit the circumstances that we found ourselves in in 2001, 2, 3, and 4 when we were all waiting for the next attack, large-scale attack on American soil. And now we're told that this strike against General Soleimani was authorized seven months ago. In seven months, the president didn't have time to follow the constitutional regulate rules and regulations to abide by the constitution that governs this republic and talk at least to the gang of eight at least give them a little heads up look when we get a clean shot we are going to take it followed up by a little quick phone call a text not a tweet that said we think we've got a shot on Thursday. And here's why now, after 13 years of war in the Middle East and 40 years of a standoff with Iran, just as Iran's people were finding their second wind after the Green Revolution of 2009 and were in the streets in the tens of thousands against the mullahs, while well, we had to go and mess it up by attacking and killing one of their 
highest ranking generals, and we found it necessary to do that at the Baghdad airport of all places without so much as a buy your leave to the Iraqis. You could say, not only have we created an incredible mess for ourselves, but you could say it's a violation of international law. Now, me not being a lawyer, I'm, I've heard the pros and cons of that, so I'm just going to say it's possible, it's probable, it's certainly an act of hubris, and it certainly is a vote of no confidence in your ally, Iraq, to take out an important official of a nation state on the territory on their territory without either getting their permission, which one would expect, or warning them that we were going to do it. It's a little wonder that the Iraqi Parliament, you know, here here we go again. Not only have we unif- have we have we helped the mullahs to gain some degree of support back among their people because we did something pretty outrageous, okay? But we've also, just at the moment we were starting to be seen as the good guys in Iraq, we have to turn that around too. So now the Iraqi parliament is telling us they'd like us to leave, okay? The military brass, according to a leaked letter, seemed to get that idea. Our military brass, the the Marine general in charge. But here's the problem. Unlike 2011, when the Iraqis said, look, uh, we've had enough of you, go home. And we said, yeah, okay, we'll go home. Um, This time, the U.S. Secretary of State says to the Iraqis, a sovereign state. The U.S. leaving Iraq? Hell no, we're not leaving. We're not even going to talk to you about it. Huh? We're their guests. We're there to train their army so that that army can defend itself against ISIS, which ain't sleeping. How do we say, if you tell us to leave, we're not going to leave? We're going to create a kerfuffle instead. Our allies are leaving. They're all saying, "Mm, force protection, that's our number one concern. We don't feel safe after what you Americans did in Iraq. So we're taking our 800 Canadians and, you know, so many Swedes and so forth out of the country. And speaking of horrible messes, because we've made one, the pictures from the Iraqi al-Assad airbase near Erbil attacked by the Iranians with ballistic missiles last week, call into question reports of Swiss mediation and a backroom deal to avoid casualties during the event. That was a story that was fed to the global press by Swiss um, diplomats and confirmed by some anonymous Americans. So Iran, if you want to weigh in here, you might want to let people know whether you were deliberate or not. Um, Looking at the level of destruction, um, I think we were just damn lucky. And the fact that our forces were dispersed and not all in bunkers, I think we were just very, very lucky. Or there by the grace of God go we. 
And what that attack does is to underscore the Iraqi concerns about a continued U.S. military troop presence in the country. Does U.S. military presence increase the risks to Iraqi military and civilian targets in general? And that's a question after the attack on Soleimani that is not just being asked in Iraq. It's being asked all through the Middle East. It's being asked in Qatar, where the Fifth Fleet is based. It's being asked in Saudi Arabia, where we now have more than 14,000 troops. Just saying. I know it feels good to attack someone who's attacked you, but have you thought about the follow-on consequences, especially given the instability in Iran, in which we're unsure whether the protests or the mourners were volunteers or not, but we do know that the Iranian people are fed up with the mullahs, so, and that that anger was only underscored by the shooting down of a Ukrainian airline with 176 people on board on Wednesday of last week. Men, women, and children by a trigger-happy member of the Iranian Republican Guard. You know, when you get through with the horror of what happened, you have to ask, in the midst of a retaliatory strike and a fear of that the United States using its offshore um, air-based naval base, naval air power might decide to escalate, okay, why the heck was the Tehran airport open? And when you get through with that, in this day of satellites and social media, how in heaven's name did the Iranian government think that it could blame the crash on mechanical failure and get away with it? While I give President Trump great credit for restraint, well, for, for just the gutsy, you know, the gutsy move, I give our military incredible credit for the precision with which they took Soleimani out. But the fact that there was no further escalation next week does not mean we are out of the woods. doesn't mean that at all. It just means we don't know when, we don't know where, but we should be pretty certain that when the mullahs need a moment to, of national unity, either in Iran or in Iraq, which is a majority Shia country, something horrible is going to happen. That ball, for the moment, is in Iran's court. And right this second, the mullahs have their hands full with a populace that is just fed up and the the shooting down of an airliner with 176 folks on board, almost all of whom were either Iranian citizens or Canadians of Iranian background and ancestry, we can breathe for the moment. But it would be best if the USA and its NATO partners allowed the remaining members of the JCPOA to restore open channels of communication with both Iran and Iraq. 
especially right now, would be a really good time for us to let our allies take the lead. Our singular objective is not to turn these countries into Western-style democracies, but rather to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons and state-sponsored terrorism. In these two objectives, the world is almost totally united. We, the Chinese and the Russians, all stand on the same side of that issue. But beyond these two objectives, every U.S. misstep is a gift to China and Russia, who have just conducted joint naval operations and and training with the Iranian Navy. Because the Iranian Navy can't take on the U.S. Navy, but, you know, China would love to someday. So when we, for what we fear may have been domestic political reasons, help China and Russia to grow their influence in the Middle East, by deviating from our own national strategic security plan that calls for a focus on Russia and China, when we do that, you and I, our families, our troops, our way of life is put at risk. And there is in me just to shed enough cynicism to say, that all of this kerfuffle in the Middle East, all that noise and smoke and explosions in the Middle Eastern sky had something to do with taking our minds off the third eye, impeachment. I don't think it worked. Nor did a half-baked part one trade agreement with China change the facts that this afternoon, this very afternoon, members of the House of Representatives delivered to the Senate two articles of impeachment against Donald J. Trump. One for the abuse of his presidential powers and a second for his obstruction of Congress in trying to get to the bottom of l'affaire Ukraine. In fact, the circumstances of l'affaire Ukraine have just kept rolling out through FOIA requests, Giuliani mob members trying to abandon the sinking ship in John Bolton's lucrative book deal. Now, mind you, there is not a chance that the president is going to be convicted in the Senate barring some blockbuster revelation a revelation the size of the Nixon tapes and the infamous 18-minute erasure. But we can hope that the exercise of an impeachment trial acts as an important break on the president's impulsive abuse of his prerogatives. When the president refuses to allow witnesses to give testimony to duly sworn oversight committees, and asserts himself immune from their censure or oversight. He pulls through a thread from the very parchment the Constitution is written on. Pull enough threads and the whole piece of parchment will fall apart. And that is the saddest part of this whole impeachment. It's 
the president's sense that under Article 2, he has this enormous power when, in fact, the founding fathers wanted to rest that power in the Congress closest to you and me because we are the government, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And you know what I find the most disheartening about this whole situation in Ukraine, you know, with with the bribery of the Ukraine or the attempted bribery, et cetera, is like in Nixon's case, it was so unnecessary, so totally unnecessary. The president, despite his pettiness, his self-aggrandizement and other characteristics that we don't want our children to admire, has built a record to run for re-election on. And that record was evident in today's split screen. At the White House, he was signing a first step trade agreement with China. It's not enough. It's cost us way too much, but it is a step. In the House of Representatives, on that second screen, we saw the passage of a resolution transmitting articles of impeachment to the Senate. And in the Senate, in that split screen, while it was establishing a time to vote um, on procedures for the impeachment trial, also was setting a time to vote on and pass the USMCA trade agreement, that's NAFTA 2.0. Again, the gains in that agreement are not significant. They won't change the lives of the majority of Americans. But it is significant that these agreements have been reached and that they have some climate and other characteristics in them that are important if tiny baby steps. But the president could run on those two agreements. He could also run on bureaucratic reform. If he can really get up a highway approved in two years instead of 10 years, we might be able to do something about some of the gridlock in America's largest cities. Our unemployment rate remains less than 4%. In a full, we have a full employment economy. We have the highest stock market numbers ever. And the middle class and small tax reform proposals that were enacted in 2017 have been beneficial. Not as beneficial as promised, but they've been positive. So we may not always like the process that the president uses. And I share with many of you a concern that he runs roughshod over the Constitution, over Congress, and over the courts. But in that process, he's gotten some things done. But instead of boasting about those accomplishments, except on Fox News, the president will be consumed in watching his own impeachment trial. Will there be witnesses at that impeachment trial? I certainly hope so. Because the impression that is left, if you've ever sat on a jury, transparency leads to a presumption of innocence or at least not guilty plea, please, rather than the, than the reverse. You know, a, a, a um, defendant who doesn't take the stand, no matter what the judge says to you about, you can't consider that, 
in your verdict jury. Jurors are people. They consider that. So to the extent that the president has been completely unwilling to cooperate with documents and witnesses and then wants to come and complain that this is a kangaroo court because they don't have firsthand knowledge, doesn't seem to be bought by 70% of the American public that wants witnesses in this impeachment trial. They want this to be fair. So that leads us to one last little question about impeachment that might take us back, in fact, to the Iran-Iraq issue, the impulsiveness of those decisions, the hubris in those decisions. I mean, John Bolton is a neocon, but John Bolton is also a diplomat and a lawyer. So when he says he's willing to talk, if if the Senate subpoenas him, you have to wonder. You know, the Democrats are going, yay, yay, yay. I always say, be careful what you wish for. Or put it a different way. Will John Bolton be Trump's Brutus? I don't think so. In other words, I don't think John Bolton is going to singularly bring down the presidency. He's not the 18-minute tape. Bolton would probably be more intellectually compatible with a President Pence than he is with President Trump, but he's a loyal Republican, a loyal member of the Republican Party, and he has high praise for anyone who opposes Iran and Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons. So here's just my take on it. I suspect that Bolton's objective is less to throw Trump under the bus and more to throw Giuliani under the bus. And in that effort, he might find some support from his erstwhile rival, Mike Pompeo. Oh, the mother of ambition is the mother of many, many strange bedfellows. Which brings us to the last of the four eyes, Iowa. And while all of this is going on, while we've got Iran and Iraq on the verge of revolutionary meltdown throughout the Middle East, a re-emergence of ISIS, etc., all as the result of a missile strike. We've got this presidential primary that's been going on for a year in Iowa. Based on last night's Iowa presidential debate featuring Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, um, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, and Tom Steyer, well, They were the only six of the 13 remaining candidates who qualified for the debate. And I watched about 45 minutes of it before I said I can't take any more. It left me asking one question. Is this the best the Democrats can do? This is a democratic field that speaks to the need to reform the election process itself. 
but that's a subject for another day. If the eventual Democratic nominee was on that stage last night, the only thing standing between President Trump and a solid re-election victory is almost certain acquittal in the United States Senate in his impeachment trial, leaving me wondering, will the Constitution still have meaning and relevance four years from now? So there are your four eyes for today, and I'm sorry it took a little longer to elucidate them than I would have liked, but the president's been very busy. Some of it's been very good, trade. Some of it's been quite speculative, genetic activity in the Middle East. Some of it is a little bit sad, and impeachment is a worrisome and, in fact, very sad event for a nation, especially a nation of the size and breadth and complexity of the United States of America. But I think there is a, you know, the businesswoman in me says, we got to talk about how to choose a presidential candidate. Clearly, there is a better way. Starting with the obvious, Iowa is too big for its britches. And that pesky constitution. Do we need it anyway? And if yes, how are we going to save it? And so very much more. But until we meet again, a thought to leave you with. A quote I heard this week that I thought made every bit of sense and talks from my heart as well. Our civic spaces do not represent the best of who we are, and we need to change that. That was a comment made by now former presidential candidate Cory Booker, the junior senator from New Jersey. Now, I know some of you will say, oh, Cory Booker. So I'm going to ask you, as I'm signing off here, to listen to the message rather than shooting the messenger, either present or previous. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.